Hi, I'm Steve Mencher for the Library of Congress, and this is another one of our Music and the Brain podcasts. Today I'm with Connie Tomeno. Connie is executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function and senior vice president for music therapy at Beth Abraham Family of Health Services in New York. Welcome, Connie. Thank you so much. Tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, do you come at music therapy as a therapist, a musician, or some combination of some of these things? It's it's really a combination of, of those and, and evolving each step of the way. I went to college as a pre-med biochemistry major, but also played trumpet in high school, and I also studied music as a, as a child. And when I went to college, wanted to take lessons from the trumpet professor there, but I had to become a music major to do so. And so um, in becoming a music major and double majoring in bio and music, I decided I didn't want to go into medicine, but didn't know what to do with my life. Found out about music therapy, which in the early 70s was still a fairly new field, uh, decided to go into that. Um, however, even with my training, which in school was mostly psychotherapeutic uses of music, um, my work was dealing with people with neurologic impairment, like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's. And it struck me early on, about 32 years ago, that that was something else about music that really got inside people and got to um, still preserved areas of function in people with Alzheimer's disease and dementia who couldn't tell you who they are or, or where they're from, and yet with the right song could become alive in the moment and actually have fluid memories and also remember the words of the song. So early on, I was curious about what was happening in the brains of these individuals. And it wasn't until I came to Beth Abraham in, in 1980 that I had the good fortune of having to be at the same place that Oliver Sacks was working as the neurologist. And he and I sort of commiserated for many, many, many times trying to figure out what it was that was happening. And in fact, at one point, went to a group of scientists in the late 80s and said, can you study music in the brain? And they said, no. It's too impossible. It's uh, You have to slice it and dice it and can't find anything out about it. And we couldn't really learn, except through clinical observation, how music works the way it does. And it's only recently, in the past 10 years or so, that we see this emergence of neuroscientists that can explain, finally, what we see every day clinically. That's great. Now, I was reading some of the things you've written, and you talk about neurological and psychological and physical functioning and uh, areas such as learning, language processing, emotional expression, memory, physiologic and motor responses. So this is all the kind of thing that music might have an effect on or, or music might filter through the brain and be related to some of these things. But right now, as you say, we're kind of getting closer and closer to figuring out what the processes are. Can you tell us a little bit about how that work is going and what people are finding out? Sure. Well, you know, the early neuroscience studies in music were really about separating music into components, you know, separating sound into pitch and where that's processed in the brain, uh, separating awareness of time and expectation. So, you know, 15 years ago, that was the course of neuroscience and, and music and the brain. Now, in the past few years, there's been the ability through functional imaging and also through some, you know, chaos theory, literally, and, and, and complex processing theories that show us how these interactions of many levels of neural networks talk to each other. In fact, um, we know that children, even before they're born, have the ability to interpret or perceive beats 
the timing of sound is already ingrained in them before they're born. And this is so key because it allows an infant to perceive the world around them, to perceive language, to understand and interpret sounds in time. But also what science is showing us is that even movement without music is providing um, an encoding of, of sound and time and rhythm. So we, have, we now know through, through neuroscience that there's an incredible interaction of aspects that we consider music, like rhythm and pitch, melody, emotional expression, emotional nuances of, of sound, that all get paired very deeply in our brains to the precursors of movement, the precursors of language, the precursors of thought, the precursors of feeling and interpretation of those feelings. And somehow, early on in our childhood development, we're starting to encode those connections very deeply. Some are preset and some are learned. But in doing so, we're forever ingraining and combining those systems together. Well, I mean, are you looking into the brains of babies in the wombs or, well, I'm or not. children? Oh, the scientists are. I mean, I'm, I, I'm seeing the patients and how they, they respond uh-huh. to music. Um, but what we see is this awareness that's so key. And when I, what I see are patients who've lost function, very specific function, through stroke, people who can't speak but can still sing. And 30 years ago, I was told, you know, flat out that somebody loses speech, they'll never get it back. The brain, once it's damaged, is damaged for life. You just get some compensatory mechanisms, but you'll never get the true ability back. And yet we see people recover function in the course of music therapy. So now what we're learning from neuroscience is that there's so many shared networks that you can't say that one specific function is the is the end result of one specific area of the brain, that there's so many networks that contribute to that ability. That, and I think through sound and through auditory stimulation, we're able to reach a lot of those fundamental areas. Now, as a music therapist, is, is music therapy something that the therapist has to do while they're in the room, or can a music therapist kind of prescribe, you know, a, a, an hour of mm. Beethoven mm. or a, a CD of James Taylor? Mm to someone or, or something to, to help them when the music therapist is gone. How, how does this work yeah. in practice? Well, well, well first, um, just so people are clear that the field of music therapy is, is an organized profession. And so music therapists are trained to really engage. One of the best forms of music therapy is live interactive music because it's in those sessions where the therapist is leading, supporting the patient's music um, or improvisation. The patient doesn't have to be musical, but in those improvisations, the, the music therapist is changing that in the moment to get more expression out of the patient. Or if the person can't walk or can't speak, the therapist is looking for or listening for abilities in the nuances of how they're responding and changing that in the moment. So music therapists create the right environment through music to allow for these abilities to show themselves. However, because of that knowledge, we can then take what works for an individual and then prescribe other types of music that are similar. So somebody who's lost their speech, who's now able to sing phrases, a music therapist may create practice tapes because we know that only through rehearsal and repetition, we change the brain. So one session isn't gonna do anything, but it's that constant repetition. So we combine both of those. Now, I've heard you say that that training is a a very big issue, and it must be very complicated to figure out, as the field changes so quickly, how you keep music therapists trained 
to understand what's going on in neurology and what's going on sure. at the very cutting edge of all these sciences. How is the field adapting to the training? Sure. I think there's a, a group of music therapists who are uh, keenly connected um, and tuned into what's happening in neuroscience, and, and there's a, an effort to really do more of that. There's a Neurologic Music Therapy Academy in Colorado that Michael Tao, a music therapist, neuroscientist, founded. They trained people to use very specific techniques of music for very specific disabilities. And so people who want to train in that particular area, either after they've received their music therapy degree or people who uh, want to be trained as a neurologic music therapist can get that specific training. We at uh, my institute, the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function, also have people train with us on specific techniques so they can use in the, in, um, the techniques that we use. Well, is your institute someplace where if, say, I was living in New York and living with my mother or grandmother and, and was noticing that there was just an impairment that that the Alzheimer's or dementia or whatever was was getting worse and worse, and and the doctor that she her neurologist for instance might say, well let, let's try this. We we're giving her Aricept or a medicine. We're doing this other thing, but perhaps we should also tr- add this. Right. A- and if they were going to do that, w- how would they do it? What would they do? Well, usually they would look for a music therapist. If it was in the New York area, they probably would find us. We're one of the biggest if not biggest program around. And either we can meet with the person in their home, and a lot of music therapists do do home visits, or if um, in some areas in the city we have places where we can, where we have studios that we can meet. And then we do an assessment of the person and see what really works for them. For people who don't have access to music therapists, we've created a program that's easier to use and easier to prescribe, if we're thinking about prescribed music, is a, a program called Well-Tuned which is basically taking the concept of autobiographical music that somebody is connected to and putting that music, finding out what songs work by interviews with family members like you as a son. We would interview you, find out what your mom liked, what type of music was part of her own history, and create a song library, place it on an iPod or MP3 player, and and send it back to you with and ask you how it works. And if it works, we'll give you more of the same type of music. So even remotely, we can help in developing programs that could work therapeutically. Well, I did actually see that on your website. And and this is probably the first time we will have done this. And I don't know even that the library likes to do this. But tell me me how they can find you on the web. Sure. Well, it's very easy. You can either um, Google Music Has Power which is uh, an, music has power, which okay. which is is uh, some, a term we use a lot, but it's also the initials of the institute. I am as in Mary N as in Nancy F dot org. I am an F dot org, and you'll learn all about these programs and how they make use of them. Now, one of the uses of music that I found particularly interesting because my mother in law has some trouble with her gait and she has some trouble sometimes walking and falling. I imagine that it would be really fabulous if you could figure out how music could help people with their gait. And, and apparently, you have do, figured yeah, some of this sure. out. Tell me about it. Sure. Well, a lot of my work has been with people with Parkinson's disease, where, where indeed gait and the synchrony of movement and the balance. Um, is very much an issue many, many times. And one of the phenomenal things that happens with rhythm specifically is how rhythm can drive very fundamental motor areas into action. So a person with uh, a gait problem who's unable either because um, they can't cue themselves anymore, maybe it's too difficult, maybe they're 
uh, what's called proprioception, you know, their sense of their body and space is damaged. If you ask them to f- listen to music and feel the rhythm, many times you'll see immediately their improvement in coordination. You'll see their steps change in time to the rhythm because now instead of thinking about how to move, they're following something. And the following, of course, is a lot easier than thinking about how to do it on your own. And so we have this way of enhancing a skill that they have in the way that they can initiate it on their own. So we could provide a rhythm or a sound that allows them to understand how to move in time and space. And through that music, indeed, uh, we see with people with Parkinson's their, their ability to to walk evenly, to initiate that, that function. We know now that there's areas of the basal ganglia that are involved as well as the cerebellum. So we know that those key areas are turned on, rhythm and music. When we think about the healing characteristics of music, you point us specifically to two of music's components, uh, rhythm and melody. And music obviously has a lot of other components, like timbre, instrumentation, loudness, tempo, harmony. So why would you start specifically with rhythm and with melody? Okay. Well, rhythm in and of itself is fundamental to music. I mean, just even sound has a rhythm to it. There's a a, a sound and and silence. And and the, the repetition of sound and silence gives us rhythm. And like I said, children uh, before birth are already wired to perceive rhythm. So we have a very fundamental mechanism that we could tap into therapeutically to turn on all areas of neural networks. Um, in fact, when you look at how neural ne- how neurons talk to each other, there's a timing mechanism. The electricity starts, it stops. You know, EEGs are rhythmic. Um, everything in the brain is rhythm and has a, a frequency to it that we pick up. So that's fundamental, and we know that we can reach things. Melody, um, I talk about melody because when we think about music and emotions, it's usually in the context of melodic sound, a song that was keyly important to us. The shape of a, of a melody can tell us a lot of nuances about meaning. So it's melody, but melody melody personally connected to somebody and the meaning that that melody provides. Uh, we know that emotions are keenly connected to our ability to either respond to something or withdraw from something. And we know that through science, um, some of these neuroscience studies, that when somebody's listening to personally preferred pleasurable music, some areas of the brain actually turn off, like the amygdala. So we know that the amygdala is involved in withdrawal, fear, so that fear response is immediately started by the amygdala. When we're having a pleasurable experience, that whole area of the brain is is shut off. It, it's not needed. And so we're more fully engaged in the experience because we're allowing ourselves to react and to be part of. And so melody, emotion, and rhythm are key. Okay. Now, how have things changed in the last couple of years as, as the work, as your work and as the work of Dr. Sachs has just exploded on the public mm-hmm. scene? He's had several bestsellers. Right. People are really keenly following this sort of thing in a way that they weren't before. Right. So how have things changed for you specifically in your work? Well, one of the wonderful things that have changed is that people actually taken it seriously. So even the scientists have taken it seriously. So something that 32 years ago, when I was told to my face that you're making this up, it doesn't work that way. People will never change. There's no way we can study music in the brain. Um, in fact, everybody seems to be studying music in the brain. It's the hardest topic in cognitive neuroscience today because 
it also allows us to study complexity in the brain and how these areas um, interact with each other. So we have a scientific community that is eager to learn about music and the brain. We have clinicians who know for years that their clinical work was effective and are now getting answers to how that work. And we have a general public who's being informed about the power of music and, and sort of the gut instinct that they had about that music affected them very deeply are starting to get an inkling, an insight as to how this works. And I think the education of the public to the fact that there is something like music therapy, which without the internet and, and all this exposure to um, public awareness of music in the brain, um, not many people knew that there was even a field, which is unfortunate because it's been around for so long. But I think that's true. I think there's a, a the growing public awareness. Uh, with awareness comes more inquisitiveness as, as well as desire and need for something. So I'm hoping that the consumer need, the interest in the possibility that music therapy can help somebody they know will drive more people to seek out music therapists and, in fact, help the, f- the field expand the way it should and rightfully should. Do you ever stand in front of a, a group now or come into a therapeutic situation now and remember back to the scene 32 years ago that you described for us uh, of your first encounter with the, the power of music? And mm. can you tell us a little bit about that as we close? I feel reassured that the world has changed because the more I think about those early days and, and realize that my stubbornness in knowing that something was really happening and the fact that only now it's been validated through neurosciences is incredibly affirming. That's great. Connie Tomeno has joined us today. She's the executive director and co-founder of the Institute for Music and Neurologic Function and senior vice president for music therapy at Beth Abraham Family of Health Services in New York. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for listening to another Music and the Brain podcast from the Library of Congress. I'm Steve Mencher.